The following sermon was delivered by Pastor Ryan Rippey in the Sunday morning service at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at calvarytruth.org. Galatians 6. We're finishing up the book of Galatians, and throughout the Old Testament prophets, there's been this theme running through Revelation about from the very beginning, life. If you remember, God created Adam and Eve in his own image, and he breathed into them the breath of life. Adam became a living being, a living creature. And because of the fall, after Adam's sin, because of the fall, now the whole creation was plunged into death. We were, according to Scripture, spiritually dead and physically dying, and this is the reality, isn't it, that we've seen in our world. And the prophets promised from the beginning with Moses, he promised that there was going to come a redeemer, a hero, a Messiah who was going to come and restore everything that was lost in the garden. And one of those things that was lost was life. In fact, throughout the Pentateuch, you see this promise of, if you remember when we went through it, Moses was telling the people, you need to circumcise your hearts because you're rebellious and stubborn and wicked. But then he goes on to say, you can't do it. What you need is you need someone to come and circumcise your hearts. And the Lord is going to do it by his spirit when he sends the Messiah who's another prophet like Moses. We see in the Pentateuch. And so this promise of the Messiah coming and the Spirit being poured out so that new life would come has been a promise since the beginning with Moses. And the prophets continue to talk about this. I love that incident when, when Moses is leading the people of Israel and God pours out His Spirit upon a number of people in the camp. And they begin to prophesy. And they begin to, to, to do ministry and serve one another and and the leaders come up to Moses and say, hey, you know, there's these other people who are doing your job, Moses. They're prophesying, and you're the great prophet. And what does Moses say? He says, I wish all the people of God had the Spirit of God. And he goes on to say, there's, there's a day when that's going to happen. And the prophets testify of this Joel in Joel 2.28, which is Peter uses on the day of Pentecost He says, this prophecy of your sons prophesying and your daughters dreaming dreams and being filled with the Spirit, that's fulfilled at Pentecost, the pouring out of the Spirit. It's what Jeremiah promised, that God was going to write the law of God by the Spirit on their hearts. And they wouldn't have to teach one another anymore, saying, know the Lord, for all of you will know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. This is what Ezekiel spoke about in Ezekiel 36 when he says, I'm going to take out their stony heart and I'm going to give them a heart of flesh. And he's going to do it by the Spirit. In fact, he gives that beautiful picture of these dry bones that are breathed life into and they live. This promise of the Spirit's ministry of coming and bringing life. So that's exactly what we see happening. Jesus in his upper room discourse says... If I go away, it's to your advantage because if I go away from you, I'm going to send a comforter who's going to come and he's going to guide you into truth and he's going to teach you all things. And not only that, he's not only going to be with you, he's going to be in you. And unless you're born from above, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. But this spirit's going to come and he's going to cause you to be born From above, the indwelling ministry of the Spirit is going to empower you. And so Jesus, right before he ascends into heaven, tells his disciples, after his crucifixion and resurrection, you wait. And you're going to receive power on high. And then you're going to be my witnesses. Here in Jerusalem, and then Judea, and then Samaria, and then the uttermost parts of the earth. And then the Lord Jesus appears to the apostle Paul and says, you're going to be my apostle to the Gentiles, and you're going to go out to the uttermost parts of the earth, the known Roman Empire at that time. And so Paul ends up in his first missionary journey in Galatia, in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. East Asia Minor, Galatia is. Modern-day Turkey. And he ends up planting churches there in his first missionary journey, and he tells them the good news of this gospel. Well, then some religious leaders, as we saw in chapter 1 and 2, come up 
from Jerusalem and they begin to tell the people, yeah, that good news you heard of faith in Christ, if you want to be really spiritual, if you want to, you want to like kickstart your Christian life and be the super Christians, you got to start obeying the law of Moses. You got to be circumcised. You got to practice festivals and new moons and Sabbaths. And you need to listen to our teaching and you need to stop listening to the Apostle Paul. And so Paul writes this letter to them after he hears about this incident and he tells them, you remember this? He's strong language and he says, Foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? Who's entranced you? Who's put a spell on you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. And he was precious to you and dear to you. And he was all sufficient to you. And now you're thinking you need to go ahead and move on to other things. Things which he goes on to say in chapters 3 and 4, by the way, they could never save. The law was never intended to save. It was only intended to condemn. And so you're going back under bondage and slavery and you haven't been set free. And that's no good news at all. That's bad news. Because the end result is you're going to be left in your sins and you're severed from Christ and you're going to be separated from him for all eternity. And so he's pleading with them and, and we just saw last week that he, he talks about freedom. He talks about the reality of freedom in Christ is that you've been born again by the Spirit, Galatians 4, that the Father has poured out his Spirit upon you so that you now have family affections for God as Father. You cry out, Abba, Father. The fullness of time came. The Father sent forth his Son to accomplish this. And you've been set free, but that freedom... Even though he's been rejecting this coming again under the law of Moses, the whole book, he says, that freedom also doesn't give you a right to use your freedom to go do whatever you want, we saw last week. You're not free to just live however you want, but rather that freedom frees you up by the Spirit to bear fruit and serve in love one another, to practice greatness in the kingdom. What Jesus said, if you want to be great in God's kingdom, be a servant of all. And so we heard the burden of the passage last week was to practice this greatness. We're free to serve in love and we need to love one another and serve one another and bear fruit by the Spirit and not grieve the Spirit and not produce works of the flesh but produce fruit of the Spirit. Keeping in step with the Spirit, depending upon Him, being led by Him. And so he goes into chapter 6 and let me just read to you verses 1 to 10. Brothers, If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Let the one who's taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. Especially to those who are of the household. Of faith. Paul is saying that this fruit of the Spirit, this new freedom we have to serve one another, it can be summed up in this idea of doing good to one another. Doing good to one another. Here we have in this passage specific cases of using our freedom to serve one another in love. And so in verses 1 to 5, love is expressed, serving one another in in love is expressed by sharing their burdens. Sharing one another's burdens. That's what he says in verse one, what we're to do. He begins, brothers. I love that after all of this rebuke and all of this warning, he still calls them brothers, brethren, brothers and sisters. Affectionate love for the churches in Galatia, a reminder of the love they should have for one another. That when Paul rebukes them in this letter, it's not because he's cast them off and he's done with them and he's decided, I have no further use for you. You're not that way, are you? Isn't that so tempting? 
in the workplace, in the community, maybe in the church, maybe in the home even. You decide you've given people enough chances and you're done with them and you've cut them off. It's like bloodless murder. You're just not going to be a part of my life anymore. I've written you off as useless and worthless. That's not what Paul does here. He says, brothers, brothers, if any is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual, you should judge him. And you should be critical of him. No, it's not what it says, is it? It says, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Here, this person who's caught in a transgression, the word here can mean that they're either that they inadvertently are involved in a wrongdoing or that, or that it has been uh, come to the attention. It's been, it's been caught out. It was a secret sin that now has been revealed. Like Numbers uh, 32, 23, be sure your sin will find you out. The Lord, I remember my life growing up, I used to think I could get away with stuff and he would just always reveal my sin. Always, I would be found out. And I, I came to learn it was a great mercy one time I was in the, uh, well, it would be the equivalent to CVS. It was the thrifty store in Vallejo with my dad. And I really wanted this gummy rat. I don't know why. I probably jelly belly made it, right? It was this big gummy rat. I mean, it was, it was large. And I was very short as a child. I was probably 12 or 13 years old. And I tried to stick it in my pocket and cover it up. This gummy rat. As if this big bulge in my pants pocket would not be found out. And I'm just walking along with this gummy rat because I really wanted it. How I thought I was going to get it past the cashier, much less past my dad who was driving me to the thrifty, I don't know. But my dad saw it. He found me out. And then he decided I needed to talk to the store manager. It wasn't enough that he caught me in the aisleway. He was going to let me feel the later verse here, you reap what you sow. I thought I was going to go to jail. I was done in. And I grew up in Vallejo, and we don't like cops in Vallejo, right? I didn't want to deal with the police. I'm just kidding. Be sure your sin will find you out. Here, he says someone's caught in a transgression. It, it comes to light. It's revealed. And, and probably Paul has in mind these works of the flesh in verses 19 to 21. Now it's not a comprehensive list because he says these things are evident And those who do such things as these will not inherit the kingdom of God. You're caught in one of these transgressions and some of these we wouldn't want to be found out in, would we? It would be shameful and embarrassing to us. We would want to run and hide. We wouldn't want our sin displayed on a big screen television for all to see. But very often in the church community, our sin is revealed, isn't it? It's brought to light and the Lord does this because he loves us. It's brought to light, and, and, and now we have this command as brothers and sisters that if someone is caught in a transgression, you want to know how you use your freedom in Christ? You serve them by bearing their burdens and going to them, and in love, confronting them about their sin, being gentle, lest you too be tempted. Galatians 6.1 here doesn't mean we're to spy out our brothers and sisters' faults. We don't need to get a private detective or search their social media and spy out all of their sins and let everybody know that's not what's going on here. Rather, it means that when sin gets revealed, we have a heart of love and compassion and a desire to see that person, as he says here, restored, brought back to being mended in the body of Christ and their relationship with God being mended and their relationship with you and one another being mended. You know, there's a a story of John Wesley that that was uh, told where he was going several times to the same town. He thought there was just a, a group of earnest Christians in this town. And he met a brother there who told them, he met this brother over a couple times in going to this town who kept telling them, oh yeah, all the people here, they're dead. What little life there is in, is in their meetings for prayer, but there was great inconsistency among them. But when Wesley got there, he didn't notice any of this. He saw vitality in life in this church and, and this ministry going on. So the third time he goes, he says to this brother, how is it that you always meet me and tell me these things about the brothers? Nobody else seems to say it. Well, you see, he said, Mr. Wesley, 
I have a rare gift of discerning spirits. Oh, said Wesley, and I love his response here. This person who's spying out their brother and sister's faults. He says, wrap that talent up in a napkin and bury it, and you'll have done the best thing possible with it. (laughs) We don't want to have the spiritual gift of spying out one another's faults. That's not a spiritual gift. That's not a gift at all. That's a curse. You know why? The cross is the great leveler, isn't it? When we look to the cross, we see that our sins were paid for by Christ, the perfect, blameless, innocent one. And our handwriting of requirements that was against us, our record, it was nailed to the cross and we bear it no more. And so we don't look at one another through human eyes anymore. We look at one another through the eyes of the gospel, with the eyes of Christ, like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9. So he says, if someone's caught in a trespass here in in verse 1, he says, you who are spiritual, you whose life and conduct are controlled by the Spirit of Christ. He had said in chapter 5, you who walk in the Spirit, you who are led by the Spirit, you who keep in step with the Spirit, In other words, you who are spiritual. It's been interesting since I I got my degree in biblical spirituality. There's some some out there who I know when I say that to them, they think, oh, you got a degree in spirituality. You must be really touchy-feely and very nebulous and very... Well, no, the idea behind biblical spirituality is it's just life in the spirit. It's, It's a biblical word right here. You who are spiritual who are keeping in step with the Spirit, you should restore them. And the idea of restoring, it was used of James and John in the Gospels as they were mending the nets. When they were fishermen, they're mending and fixing the nets so they would work. And Jesus calls them as they were mending the nets and says, follow me. It's that same word. It was a word used outside of the Bible to refer to doctors who would set a bone so it would heal straight. He says, you who are spiritual, you go restore that person who's caught in a transgression. The idea is you're going you're gonna to mend them. You're going to set the bones straight by the, the, the fruit of the Spirit you have in you, by your love, by the word of truth that you carry, this gospel. You're going to go to them and you're going to set them straight by the grace of God. And it's going to be done in a spirit of gentleness, which is one of the fruits of the Spirit. And so what we're to do, we are to restore our brothers and sisters when they're caught in a transgression. You know, Jesus taught on this. Turn over to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew 18, verses 15 to 17. Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Don't post it on social media first. Go and talk to them. Between you and him alone. And I love this, go and tell him his fault. That, that, that is face-to-face contact, isn't it? So much easier in this day and age to send a text. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you. That every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And this is really good wisdom by Jesus. Of course, it's Jesus. He has good wisdom. But I've been in ministry long enough now to know that the first person who comes to me isn't always the one in the right. Perhaps they're looking to get uh, people on their side so that they can make the other person be in the wrong. And by having two or three witnesses, you can get the facts and see what's going on in the situation. Proverbs says wisdom is listening to both sides before you decide. Then he says if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. So if two or three witnesses going and this brother is in sin and they still refuse to repent, they still refuse to be restored, you tell it to the church. Still with the goal of restoration. Notice that this isn't the final step. It's not like you tell it to the church and now everybody excommunicates and shuns them. That's not it at all. You tell it to the church so that they can pray, so that they can go plead and talk to this brother or sister. But then if they refuse to listen even to the church... Let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And I say to you, if two of you agree on 
earth about anything they ask will be done for them by my Father in heaven, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. And so Peter asked this really perceptive question. Man, you're going you're gonna to take this person along the process of church discipline. You're going to reveal their sin to the church. The church is going to be praying. And, and even if they're still unrepentant, they're going to be treated as a Gentile or tax collector. So Peter says, I have a question for you. If my brother sins against me, how often should I forgive him? Because Peter's thinking, there's a few people I'd like to cut out of my life. There's a few people that I'd want to say, well, you know, I've forgiven you once or twice. That's enough. Third time, you're out. Seven times? So Peter's generous. He says, seven times do we forgive him? Seven, Jesus says to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times, 70 times seven. Basically, you forgive them as many times as it takes. You know, Scripture teaches another principle is that we need to be ready to forgive, but we can't forgive until forgiveness is asked, until there's repentance. So this doesn't mean that we don't deal with sin. This doesn't mean that we all just just sort of ignore one another's sins. Galatians 6, back to Galatians 6, this is what it's teaching us, is that we have to love one another enough to speak the truth to one another in love, to go and correct one another when we're in the wrong. And that's hard, isn't it? It's much easier to just not mention anything. Let time sort of take care of it. It's really hard work. It's really uncomfortable. And we don't like conflict to go and say to somebody, you know, I've seen this sin in your life and I'm concerned for you. I'm concerned that this is dominating your life and and it's not keeping in step with the gospel. And I just want to encourage you. Paul told the Thessalonians that there's a a variety of ways we're to deal with people. We're to, for example, we're to encourage the faint-hearted. And that word encourage, parakaleo, it's this idea of coming alongside and helping somebody when they're falling down. It's that picture of in a race. You come along and you get underneath the person so that they can finish the race. And the people who are faint-hearted, this idea of small-souled, micro-suke in the, in the Greek, this idea that they want to do the right thing, but then they look at the, the hills ahead of them and the mountains ahead of them, and they crumble under the weight of the pressures of life. But they are not rebellious, they just are faint-hearted. And we're to encourage them. In that same verse, he says, rebuke the unruly. And that word rebuke is a strong word. It, it, place before the mind the truth Tell them the truth and place it right in front of their mind. And those people are unruly. They're high-handed sin. They're just like, hey, you know what? God's not the boss of me. I'm going to do what I want. You don't ever get that way, do you? (laughs) And then he says, help the weak. Those who are physically weak, who have no physical strength, we're to help them. We're not to just say, hey, I'm going to pray for you. No, you're to get hands and feet and ministry and help them and so he says you who are spiritual restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness one of the fruits of the spirit this is how we're to do it and he says lest you be tempted so we need to do it in a spirit of self-examination this is what jesus taught get the log out of your own eye before you get the splinter the speck out of your brother's eye Examine yourself before you go decide to help someone else. This is a a very wise habit to do. Paul told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. When we think we've arrived, when we think that that person who's struggling with this sin or that sin and we think, oh man, I've mastered that. I don't have a problem with that sin in my life. Let me go help them out and tell them because I've got all the answers for that. Paul says that's a good way to fall right into that same sin lest you be tempted to do the same thing. And so this is how we're to do it. Really, we're to do it in humility, with gentleness. Then he says in verse two why we're to do it. Verse two, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Paul told the Romans in chapter 15 that we who are strong, we actually have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. 
and not to please ourselves. Romans 1. I'm Romans, in fact, turn over to Romans 15. I want to show you the, the context of that. Romans 15, verse 1. Because this ties it back to the gospel. This isn't Paul just now. He's talked about the gospel for five chapters and now he's giving you really good practical advice that you need to do in addition to the gospel. As if it's some sort of new law. Yeah, you're not supposed to live under the law of Moses, but let me give you a new law. Paul's law. That's not what Paul's doing here. In fact, Romans 15 verse 1. We who are strong, we have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. And then what does he say the motivation of this is? What's it rooted in? Verse 3, Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. So the gospel is our motivation for doing good to one another, to bearing one another's burdens. Those of us who are spiritual, who here in this passage are strong, we have an obligation. It's not like an option. In Galatians 6, it's a command. You who are spiritual, go to that person. This is the hard work of living in community. It's messy. It's not easy. Sometimes you lose friendships over it. But if we really love one another, we will do this. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. I was moving my sister yesterday. She moved into a new home. Uh, it's been a little over a year after Yuri's death. And so my brothers and I, it was, it was very short notice, but we, we were moving her into her rental, and, and uh, my brothers were happy to let me carry the burdens. <laughs> my brother Kevin said, I'm glad you do jujitsu because you got those nice muscles. There was a, you know, Christy did a really good job packing the boxes except for one box of books. That it was not really a book box. It was like this big, full of books. And uh, my brother Kevin decided he just wasn't going to move that box. And so I pulled the short straw. What he's saying here is we all have burdens We're weak in some areas, we're stronger in others, and we are to bear one another's burdens. In fact, it's interesting because down in verse 5, he says we have to carry our own burden. In our English, we don't don't see the, the difference as much because the same word burden is used. But the word burden in verse 2 is this idea of a heavy book box, a stone, a rock, this thing that can't be moved by one person, and you need to use more than one person to carry it. Whereas in verse 5... It's the idea of a, a smaller burden, like a backpack that you, you can carry yourself. In fact, it's what I tell my kids when we're at Yosemite in the summer. You can carry that backpack yourself. I'm not carrying your backpack. I'm not carrying your water bottle. You bear your own burden. It's good for you. We need each other. You know, the, what, between verses 1 and 2, there's something that sticks out to me. Self-sufficiency is a myth. Self-sufficiency is a lie from the devil. It is not a mark of bravery. It is a sign of pride. Self-sufficiency is the foundation and root of all sorts of sins because it's rooted in pride. You see, we need each other. This is what's so important about the community of faith. It's what's so important about us being involved in one another's lives more than on Sunday mornings. It's not because we're wanting to busy up your calendar and your schedule. It's because we are living life in community and we need one another. We can't do this alone. And so what we need to do is we need to bear one another's burdens in verse 2. And he says in doing so, you're actually fulfilling the law of Christ. Christ's command to love one another, to love your neighbor as yourself. This law of love, this law of Christ. That's why Paul says in Romans 13, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Make no provision for the flesh. So what do we need to do? We need to be preaching the gospel to one another. When we see one another falling down and caught in sin, we need to go to one another and remind one another of what's true in the gospel. That conduct, what you're doing, that sin you're, you're committing, it's not in line with the gospel that you've believed, that you profess. Christ died for that sin so that you could put it off and you could put on the Lord Jesus and you could make no provision for the flesh. 
And it's so easy to forget it and we need to remember it. It's why we come to the table so that we remind each other regularly. This is the body and blood of Christ. Not literally, it's a picture of it, right? But this is the gospel. This is the body and blood of Christ. This is who he is and what he's done for us. And we've been set free and we've been forgiven and we've been changed and we've been given the Holy Spirit and we're not the same. And so we don't have to crawl into the casket and live like we used to live. We need to hear that over and over and over. I need to hear it. You need to hear it. And so we're to bear one another's burdens and fulfill the law of Christ. This is why we're to do it. And in doing so, there's some things we need to avoid in verses 3 to 5, back in Galatians 6. The first thing we need to avoid is pride, verse 3. Galatians 6, if anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. Pride, a reminder that apart from Christ, we're nothing. Christ is all. It's a book into verse 1. Don't go and be critical and think that you've got all the answers when you go to help someone, that you've got it all settled and figured out because if you think you're something when you're nothing, you deceive yourselves and you too are going to be tempted. So he says, we need to avoid pride. We need to be humble. And the best way I know to instill humility, why do we know in verse three that we're nothing? Paul's not trying to tear us down. He's not trying to, to, to destroy your, your sense of self-image. Or he, What he's doing is he's reminding you of what's true apart from Christ. We're nothing apart from Christ. Apart from Christ, he says in Ephesians, we are separated from the life of God. We are without faith. We're without God in this world. Without hope. We're nothing. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. We're under bondage to the prince of the power of the air who's at work in the sons of disobedience. Apart from Christ, that's what we are. So we, we shouldn't think that we're anything special or that we've got all the answers or we've got it figured out or we're so spiritual that people should just follow us. If they would just live like me and listen to my advice, man, their life would be a whole lot easier. That's how we can think, especially with our kids. But even there, we have to have humility, don't we? He says in verse 4, another thing we're to avoid is these relative comparisons. But let each one test his own work, then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. What does he mean by this? He's speaking of the foolishness of those who measure themselves by one another, compare themselves with one another, This is in Luke 18 what the Pharisee did in the parable. I thank God that I'm not like that tax collector. You see, and and he says here in verse 4, look at your own work. Don't worry about what their work is. Your reason to boast to be in yourself alone and not your neighbor. Don't make relative comparisons. Because verse 3 said, you're not anything apart from Christ. So if you want to make the comparison, use the real barometer Use the real plumb line, the real litmus test. It's the Lord Jesus Christ, not one another. We all are weak in areas and strong in other areas. We all need each other. And then he says in verse 5, another thing we should avoid is laziness in this. He says in verse 5, for each will have to bear his own load. You see, we can bear the small loads. That's the idea of the load in this the burden in this verse, not, just not the heavy ones. John Stott, in his uh, commentary in Galatians, he gives the difference between the two loads. So we're to bear one another's burdens which are too heavy for a man to bear alone. And there's one burden which we cannot share. Indeed, we do not because it's pack light enough for every man to carry himself. That's our responsibility to God on the day of judgment. On that day, you cannot carry my pack and I cannot carry yours. He says... Each will have to bear his own load. And, and the reason why John Stott is mentioning the day of judgment is because this is in the future tense. Each will have to bear, uh, bear his own load. It's this idea of standing before the judgment seat of Christ and receiving rewards for what we've done that we're going to stand and, and we're accountable to him alone. 
And so love is expressed in bearing one another's burdens. Then he goes on in 6 through 10 to say love is expressed in liberality, in giving. Giving of ourselves, giving of our money, giving of our resources, giving of our time. It's expressed in all of these things. Verse 6, let the one who's taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. First example he gives is sharing, giving to preachers and teachers. Paul exhorted believers to give regularly, generously, and joyfully. This is overall in his ministry. He says, both to the collection for the poor saints in Jerusalem, for example, and also the regular maintenance of godly teachers in their midst. And in doing so, Paul is just teasing out the implications of the gospel. It's what the Lord Jesus taught. In Luke 10, in Matthew 10, the laborer deserves his wages. Elsewhere, Paul paraphrases these words of Jesus in 1 Corinthians 9 to say those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. And so how does this relate to this passage? Because I will confess to you, when I first was reading it again this week to prepare, I thought, as I'm doing, working on my outline, I thought, this seems like just a one-off verse that has nothing to do with the rest of the passage and the burden of the passage, but I think it does. And here's why. Why does Paul bring this up? I think it's a great example of how to bear one another's burdens in the body of Christ. You see, perhaps what was going on is that the Galatians, they had withdrawn financial support from their own pastors and teachers when these Judaizers came in. That they had stopped giving to their own pastors and teachers and perhaps they were diverting their money to these Judaizers. And what we see here is part of the body of Christ is this bearing one another's burdens financially And spiritually, the pastor's responsibility is to preach and teach the word to feed the flock. There is a special relationship between the pastor and his flock. And the flock's responsibility is to give in order to help bear the pastor's financial burdens. That's what Paul's getting at here, I think. That's why he brings it up. I'm not preaching this just so you'll give me money. That's not what I'm doing here. This is is Paul saying this is an example of bearing one another's burdens. Sharing with one another, giving of your resources to one another, giving of your time and your expertise to one another. The Lord is the one who gifts pastors and teachers to the church. And and anytime the Lord raises up pastors and teachers in our midst, it is a blessing. We rejoice in that. Then he goes on to say, Another example of love being expressed in liberality and giving is in this principle of you reap what you sow, verses 7 and 8. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. I think it's another contrast between the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit he had in chapter 5. So this is another contrast in the passage of this is what it means to live in freedom, to serve in love, to bear one another's burdens... And if you reap selfishness and self-sufficiency and pride and criticism, you're going to sow that in the church. It's going to be divided. It's going to be broken. Your relationships are going to be broken. But if you reap gentleness, correcting one another in love, giving, serving, pouring yourself out, it's going to reap a fruitfulness in your life and in the church for the sake of the Christ and the gospel. But he says, God is not mocked. Don't be deceived. The most famous sermon, according to I don't, American historians, uh, I took this American preaching class. The most famous sermon in American history was preached by R.G. Lee over a thousand times. And the title was called Payday Someday. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. You who are older may have actually heard him preach it. You can actually go listen to him preach it on YouTube. Not the video, but the audio. And it is recounting, it's a, it's a sermon that he does a, just a wonderful job recounting the story of Ahab and Jezebel and how God is not mocked and how that prophecy of Jezebel who would die and her blood would be licked up by the dogs and how it came to pass. And he tells his people, 
God is not mocked. There is a payday someday. And you reap what you sow. You see, we can't take God's kindness for weakness. Just because he hasn't acted doesn't mean he won't act. He's patient, not desiring that any would perish, but that all would come to him. My dad, I remember very distinctly when I was in a season of my life with one of my kids and I didn't know what to do or what to teach them because there was a a pattern in their life. My dad told me, you can teach one or two lessons to them. You can either teach them you reap what you sow or you can teach them grace. And you can't really learn both at the same time. Can you? And that's really good parenting advice. With our kids, we can either teach them you reap what you sow and you're gonna suffer the consequences of your dumb decision, whatever it is, You punch a bigger guy, you're going to get pummeled. You reap what you sow. (laughs) Or you can show that teach them grace. Either way, you remind them of the character of God. And they are not, just because both can't be taught at the same time, doesn't mean that they're mutually exclusive. In fact, John MacArthur in his commentary says, the law of sowing and reaping, it's not contradicted by the gospel of grace. The law of salvation in Jesus Christ is in fact the ultimate demonstration of that law. Jesus Christ sowed perfect righteousness and reaped eternal life, which he gives to those who trust in his finished work. The believer reaps eternal life because in faith he's united with Christ and with what he's sown and reaped on man's behalf. And so Paul says, don't be mocked. Don't be deceived, rather. God is not mocked. You reap what you sow. And the one who sows to his flesh, you're going to reap corruption from the flesh. Those who sow to the Spirit, you're going to reap from the Spirit eternal life. Once again, goes back to this idea that our freedom isn't freedom to do whatever we want. Rather, it's freedom to serve one another in love. And so that's why he concludes in, in verses 9 and 10 with, Let us not grow weary of doing good. Don't grow weary in well-doing. For in due season we will reap if we don't give up. Don't become weary. Turn over to Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12, verse. I'm really looking at verse 3, but, but verse 1. Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses... Let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. That's what we heard in Psalm 62. David preaching to his own heart the reality. What's true? I'm going to wait in the Lord. My hope is in Him. He's my rock. He's my salvation. He's my fortress. I'm going to wait and rest in Him. John Carson, dear brother John Carson, he taught our biblical counseling classes at the seminary before he went home to be with the Lord. And this is, this is what he would say to us over and over. Don't let your heart talk to you. You talk to your heart. If you let your heart talk to you, you're going to be deceived. You're going to be thrown into a, a spin, a tailspin, and you're going to crash and burn. Instead, you need to talk to your heart and tell it what's true. What's true in Christ. What's true in the gospel. This is what Paul is saying. We don't want to grow weary in well-doing. Isn't it easy? We, we see the world around us. We see the wicked prosper, perhaps in your jobs. You've tried to glorify God. You've tried to, to walk the straight and narrow and do good and have integrity and be honest. And you see your coworkers get advancement, get raises, get bumped up because they lie and they steal and they cheat to get ahead. And then you're tempted. Oh, maybe I could just, this one time, maybe I could just, Fudge the numbers. Maybe I could just 
lie to the client this one time. Maybe I could just take credit for work that's not mine just this once. So easy to grow weary in well-doing when we look to the world. What we need to do is look to Christ. That's what he says in Hebrews Look to him, the author and finisher of our faith. Consider him so we don't grow weary in well-doing and faint-hearted. It goes back to Christ. Verse 10, back in Galatians. That's why he says, back in Galatians 6, verse 10. So then as we have an opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. What is doing good? I mean, that's a very broad statement, Paul. Well, in chapters 5 to 6, he had said what the doing good was. Expel the agitators from your midst. Love your neighbor as yourself. Keep in step with the Spirit by manifesting the fruit of the Spirit in your lives. Practice church discipline by restoring those who've fallen. Bear one another's burdens. Examine yourself in the light of the judgment seat of Christ. And provide material support for those who instruct you in the faith. Doing good is the same thing as fulfilling the law of Christ. Why do we need this reminder? John Calvin has good advice. This precept is especially necessary because we are naturally lazy in the duties of love. <laughs> Way to, you know, give it to us gently, Calvin. We're naturally lazy in the duties of love, and many little stumbling blocks hinder and put off even the well disposed. We meet with many unworthy, many ungrateful people. The vast number of the needy overwhelms us. We're drained by paying out on every side. Our warmth is damped by the coldness of others. Finally, the whole world is full of hindrances which turn us aside from the right path. Therefore, Paul does well to confirm our efforts so that we do not faint through weariness. That's why we need the reminder. And what we also need to realize is we can't put too much stock in visible results. God is sovereign. Sometimes we never visibly see the fruit of our labors. And sometimes we never visibly see the fruit of doing good. Sometimes it's much delayed. Recently, uh, Phil Foley, pastor of Community Bible Church, his son Nick was, uh, got baptized a, couple, two, two, a year or two ago, two years ago. And I was flying on the plane with Phil to go over to the Philippines because we were teaching together. And he tells me, oh, Nick said in his testimony that your preaching at summer camp led him to Christ. And that had been five or six years ago. And I jokingly said to Phil, that would have been nice to know then. I mean, I sometimes wonder if there's any fruit in my teaching and preaching. And so I appreciate that I actually heard that. Sometimes our fruit is much delayed. Sometimes we never see it. We can't put too much stock in visible results. We have to just be faithful to not grow weary in well-doing and we'll reap a harvest. And he says, we'll reap a harvest if we don't give up. And it's this idea of the ultimate reward is at the return of Christ. The ultimate reward is when Christ comes back. That's why Paul tells the churches, you are my reward at the coming of Christ. So he says in verse 10, we have a, an opportunity and a duty to do good to everyone. Everyone's created in the image of God. And we're to do good to everyone. There is no exceptions to that. We're to do good to everyone. That's hard. I'll be honest, that's hard. And I fail at it. But that's what we're to do. We're to do good to everyone. And then he says, especially the household of faith. Every poor and distressed man has a claim on us for pity. And if we can afford it for active exertion and for financial relief, but a poor Christian has a far stronger claim on my feelings and my labors and my property. He's my brother or my sister, equally interested as myself in the blood and love of Christ. I expect to spend eternity with them in heaven. They're the representative of my unseen Savior. And everything done to this poor brother or sister Christ considers done to himself. And for a Christian to be unkind to another Christian, it's not only wrong, it is devilish. It is monstrous. It is wicked. You see, and, and just by way of closing, pride is a cancer that leads to all sorts of destructive 
behavior. It's contrary to God and the gospel. It manifests in self-sufficiency rather than resting in the grace of God in Christ. That's why Paul says in verse 14 in chapter 6, I mean, he just says, you could get the impression that he's saying, yeah, you need, to be, you need to boast in your good works, but that's not what he's saying. He's saying you need to look to the reward. There's a big difference. Boasting in your own self-sufficiency versus looking to the reward you're going to have for the good works you do. Verse 14 of chapter 6, far be it from me to boast except in the cross of my Lord Jesus Christ, he's going to want to say. But is love fake if it's motivated by a reward? Is love fake if it's motivated by a reward? There's been a, a long history in the last 200 years of Christians being told that the only way you can truly give and love is if you have no self-interest whatsoever. And that is untrue. That is not in keeping with the gospel. Jesus, in Acts 20, verse 35, Paul says, Jesus taught it's more blessed to give than to receive. So we actually want to be blessed. We are looking for the reward, and we do it by giving rather than receiving. And in Luke 14, Jesus says, when you do good works, it's going to be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Luke 14, 12. And in Luke 6, he says the same thing. He says, when your father sees what you do in private, your reward in heaven will be great. So Jesus himself taught us that we should be motivated by reward, not on this earth primarily, but in heaven. Randy Alcorn, in his book on money and giving, he says, you can't, we can't take it with us when we die, but we can send it on ahead. And that is true. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Doing good to one another must be motivated by, the, by Christ and the gospel, empowered by the Spirit for the glory of God the Father. Father, thank you for this word. It is a good word. We need to be reminded of this. This is putting legs on our faith. It's putting hands to our love. Give us courage to speak the truth in love to one another, to confront one another when we see sin, to not just brush it off and let it go. May we not be lazy and pass off sin and weakness in our own Christian life and say, well, I'm just living in freedom of the gospel. No, Father, may we be motivated by Christ as our example to serve one another in love. May we give of our time and our money and our resources. Give of ourselves. We're to be a living sacrifice. May we pour out our lives into this community of faith for the glory of Christ. Not grow weary in well-doing, knowing that we're going to receive a reward from you. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. To respond to this message or learn more, please visit calvarytruth.org.